Hello and welcome to Financial Planning Explained. My name is Mike Menninger, I'm your host. I'm a certified financial planner, president and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. Uh, love talking about educational aspect of financial planning. And if you look at the six areas of financial planning, the one area is estate planning. And I have a lot of guests that I wanna bring onto this show. Uh, in fact, I've already had one. Brian Adler was my first guest who talked about elder law planning. And I have multiple guests coming in the future. Um, you know, one of them is going to be talking about special needs planning. One of them is going to be talking about estate administration. And another one may be talking about trusts. So before I get into the, the weeds with it, I thought what might be a good idea is to provide an overview of estate planning. Um, this is a, you know, I keep saying it's my favorite subject. I always say tax planning is my favorite subject. And I say retirement planning is my favorite subject. Uh, they're all my favorite subjects. If you haven't figured it out, I'm pretty passionate about what I do. But my favorite presentation to the public is the estate planning. And this is the presentation that I generally provide to the public. In fact, I also provide it to Temple University students as part of their financial planning program. So let's get ready. Here we go. So, when people think estate planning, there's a propensity to say, ah, I don't need that. That's only for the rich people. Well, no, actually, on the contrary, it's really for everyone. Okay, why? Because really, when it comes down to the estate plan, there's five elements of it, but everybody thinks of the will. And the will does define, people think of it as, well, where's my money go? Okay, that's great. But what if you have dependent children? So if you have dependent children, the will specifies who takes care of them. And I always like to ask really dumb questions to put it into perspective. Who do you want to make the decision of who takes care of your children and where your assets go? Would you like to make that decision? Or do you want to leave it to the state to decide for you? I think that's a pretty easy question to answer. So the five elements of the estate plan, again, are the will. So when you're drafting a will, it's pretty straightforward. Where do you want your assets to go? And then where do I want my children to go? Now, of course, you're not going to give them away, but you need, you know, you need somebody to take care of them. With a married couple, a lot of times these are very easy, particularly with the children. You know, the, the, the surviving spouse will continue to take care of the children. The big issue is that if you both die or if you're single with children and you die, then that's a bigger issue. And then with the, the will, you're also going to name an executor of the will. Now recognize the executor's job is important, okay? And you wanna really have somebody or some people who are clearly someone you trust. But also know that the executor of the will's job is not to decide how the assets are distributed or who get the children. It's their job specifically only to execute, that's why they call it executor, where executrix is the female version, is the executor of the will make sure that the will gets taken care of properly.
And the will really only handles assets at death. And then after that's done, the executor's done with their job. So the other components of the will are the power of attorney. Power of attorney is interesting because we talked about that with Brian Adler. The need for a power of attorney is pretty great, particularly if you have, if you're single, uh, you're elderly, and what it does is it establishes someone who can act on your behalf in the event that you're incapacitated. You wrap your car around a tree and you're knocked unconscious and you're in a coma for two, three months. You know, who's going to pay the mortgage? Who's going to take the money out of the account and do what it is needed? Okay, that's what a power of attorney does. Then you've got the medical power of attorney, which is not the same. The medical power of attorney is the person who's going to make the decision of medical procedures. So I wrap my car around a tree and I'm in a coma and they need to make a decision as to whether to operate. Is it a risky operation? They need to be able to ask someone, should I do it or should I not do it? Now, medical powers of attorney oftentimes are thought of for people who are older. Well, in my discussions with estate attorneys, it's remarkable how many attorneys have said, you know what I do? It's the gift to my uh, client's 18-year-old children who are in college. You'd think that your child's in college, they wrap their car around the tree, no big deal. Their parents can make medical, medical decisions. Uh-uh. It doesn't work that way because they've reached age of majority. So one thing that you as parents, if you have children and they're over age of 18, you really ought to encourage having them get a medical power of attorney so that you or someone can make medical decisions on their behalf in the event that they can't. Then you've got the living will. The living will is pretty much, okay, do you pull the plug? You know, if I wrap my car around a tree and I'm a vegetable and I'll never recover and they're having to provide me with a breathing tube or a feeding tube, the living will allows me while I am alive to say, I do not want to be kept that way. Oftentimes you hear of it as a DNR or a do not resuscitate. Then the other thing the will can do is create trusts. I love trusts. I never really understood them before I got to know and understand and learn about estate planning. Trusts are an absolutely useful tool that allows you to be able to distribute your assets long after your death. For instance, the will can specify, I want my assets to go to somebody, and it does. But Utilizing a trust allows you, once you die, it allows the distribution of those assets over time to be distributed in the way that you wanted them. A perfect example of that, that you might want to consider doing, is in the event that you have young or minor children, or you have... Um, um, children who may have drug problems, may have uh, legal problems, or whatever. Establishing a trust for them, let's take, for instance, let's say I'm single and I have two young children, 
And, or even if I'm married and have two young children and we both die in either case, let's say for instance, we were to leave them each a million dollars. And by the way, it's not hard to hit a million dollars, particularly when you add in the value of your property, the value of your retirement plans, and oh, by the way, it's not uncommon for people to have life insurance. So when you add all that together, it is not uncommon for someone to have a couple million dollars in assets. So using a trust, if I wanted to leave a million dollars to each of my kids and they're either young or you know, not even over the age of 18, I have the ability to put it in a trust that protects them from themselves. And what do I mean by that? Well, it protects them from themselves, and I've heard the Harley versus Harvard. Okay, if, if you give an 18-year-old a million dollars, the chances are pretty darn good that they're not going to spend it wisely. So a trust enables me to make sure that the assets are spent wisely over time. So I can make it so that they don't get the money until they're 25. Or, in my case, I actually establish it so they get one-third of the money at age 25, one-third at the age of 30, and one-third at the age of 35. The other thing this protects against is, again, it protects them against themselves. If they blow the money, it's gone. However, by doling it out, if they receive one-third of it at age 25 and blow it, at least they have two strikes left. They get more money at 30, more money at 35. And by the way, I am only using this as an example. You can have it distributed however you want, okay? But the other thing it does is let's say, for instance, not that this would ever happen, but we all know it has, is coming home from a bar one night, and not a, bad, not a good experience happens, you take someone out. Well, guess what? Money held in the trust is considered to be creditor proof. So if one of my children gets into some type of legal action, that money is protected from being sued. Similarly, let's say at the age of 28, they got divorced. The spouse cannot touch any residual assets that are in those trusts. So what, again, this is protecting it. So let's now talk about what happens to assets in a normal estate. So, someone dies. Whatever is assets they have are what's considered to be in their estate. And most people think, okay, the will is gonna say where everything goes. Not so fast, because not all assets actually make it to the will. For instance, what gets pulled out before it goes to the will? Well, anything held jointly. So let's say I'm married, and I have bank accounts, I have investment accounts, the house, okay, they're held jointly. Well, if I die, poof, those assets immediately go to the spouse or whoever the joint party is who's named on that particular asset or that particular account. Then the other is beneficiaries, beneficiary-driven things. What are the common beneficiary-driven things? Well, 401ks. IRAs, Roth IRAs, pensions, life insurance, annuities, all these things most people have. And if they have them, they've named the beneficiaries.
So if I die and I have an IRA naming my children as the beneficiary, well, guess what? That money's not going to the will. So in fact, what happens a lot of times, people may not realize, is most of their assets leave before it even makes it to the will. But the will still, I don't want to belittle the importance of it, but it's important as it pertains to estate planning and more so how you handle the registration of your assets if you want it to go to the will. Because here's what happens. If once all of this comes out, if I don't have a will, goes back to that same question. Who do I want taking care of my children and who do I want having my assets? Who I want or who the state says I'm going to give them to, okay? And the state doesn't arbitrarily decide. There are rules, okay? And the rules may say it's automatically distributed, you know, sideways being siblings, up to the parents, down to the children, to the spouse. There's, there's rules for each state as to where exactly the assets go, and that's what's called intestate. Intestate means there's no will, and it falls into the state's pecking order. But if there is a will, well, then guess what? Now the will specifies where the money goes. So I've actually heard this before, and I have to imagine that every one of the viewers has heard this before, too. Um, someone gets divorced, okay, and then they remarry. They forget to change the beneficiary to their 401k or their IRA or the life insurance policy. And believe me, when that happens, the new wife does not have a leg to stand on, or new spouse. So this has happened before. The husband die, uh, died, and little did he realize his 401k that he established with the company 20 some odd years ago had his first wife listed as the beneficiary. Since the time that he started with the company, he since got divorced and then subsequently remarried. All that money went to his ex-wife. And oh, by the way, I can assure you, the new wife was not very happy. And I will also tell you that she did not have a leg to stand on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into some of the pitfalls as it pertains to, you know, most people have assets going like this. But I want to go through some of the pitfalls. So with the estate planning, what happens, married couple. Okay, very simple. Usually it's this. You know, husband leaves it to wife, wife leaves it to husband, and the secondary is when they die, the money goes to the children. Great. Sounds simple, right? Well, guess what? There are a lot of pitfalls with this, all right? What if the spouse remarries? And I imagine that all of you have heard this one time before or another. The spouse remarries and then they name their new spouse the beneficiary, and then they die. Now, all of a sudden, the new spouse has no care for the original children of the husband and wife, and now, all of a sudden, the kids are shut out. It happens. Believe me when I tell you, it happens. The other thing is sometimes, and I've also seen this happen with clients, husband and wife may have different goals. You know, the husband may say, I would like to leave a certain amount of money for charity. I would like to leave a certain amount of money for the kids. And I would like to leave it here, here, and there. Meanwhile, they pass away. And the surviving spouse says, well, you know what? I got different, different plans. 
you know, I really don't like that charity, I like this charity. Or remarries, wants to give it to different children. You know, these things happen, okay? Then sometimes, although their, their, um, their assets combined would exceed the federal estate limit. Now, the federal estate limit we're going to talk about later is $11.5 million. So therefore, if each of the two spouses is 11 and a half, it's a total of $23 million. I can assure you, not a lot of people are hitting that. However, it has been every single time they're having discussions about tax law changes. Believe me when I tell you, the estate tax limit was one of the things that they're talking about. Oh, by the way, don't underestimate that. Because not that many years ago, prior to Bush changing the tax laws, it used to be $675,000. Okay, so as I indicated before, leaving money to kids who are either young or irresponsible may also not be a good idea. And last is in the event that one of the spouses may need uh, elder care or nursing home care, okay, that could wipe out the assets and leave none for inheritance. So what are some of the possible solutions? All right, boy, am I creative. John and Jane Doe, wow. Go, Mike. So let's talk about that second marriage scenario, okay? And in, let's say in both cases, they each are in a second marriage and each have their own children. Well, the concern that John may have is that if he dies, leaves all of his money to Jane, she may not leave his kids in the will, in her will, as beneficiaries or she remarries, or whatever. So the same, by the way, could go with Jane. But in this particular case, I am illustrating just one. So what's the possible solution? And believe me, we've used this many times before. It is actually a relatively simple solution. In this particular case, John has a bunch of assets. They've got the house, they've got a IRAs, he's got IRAs, he's got... Uh, rather investment accounts, he's got life insurance on himself, he's got a couple kids, loves his wife Jane, don't get me wrong here, okay, but wants to protect his kids, but also wants to make sure that Jane is protected. How do you accomplish both objectives? Well, one of the things that John could do is he could create a trust. And once again, what the trust does is it provides a mechanism for John to distribute assets long after he dies in the manner that he wants. So in John's case, what he might do in this particular situation is he may leave some assets to Jane, okay? Might be leaving the beneficiary of his IRA uh, or some of the assets. It could even be the house, all right? However, what he could also do is create a trust. Now, what he'll do with this trust is he'll put whatever he wants into into the trust. He could put the proceeds of the life insurance policies that he has on himself. He can make the trust the beneficiary of it. He could uh, put any other investment accounts or even the residence. And that's kind of tricky, but not really. He could put the residence that the two of them are still living in into the trust. Now, this happens a lot of times if if the one spouse is wealthier, coming into the marriage wealthier than the other, what they'll do is they'll take, let's say it's a $500,000 house. What he has the ability to do is name the trust as the owner of the house. And basically it means it's in the trust. Now, what that does is that allows Jane to live there for the rest of her life. And if she ever sells the house, no big deal, she could sell the house. 
the assets or the proceeds from the house remain in the trust and she can go and buy another house with the assets and the proceeds. Usually what happens is that they downsize, no big deal. So now we put all these assets inside the trust and now Jane can live off the interest or the investment income. And so John can already declare that we're going to put all this money into a trust and Jane will continue to receive the income from the trust. Now, I've seen it where it's 5%, 5% of the value at the beginning of the year, and she gets that. So she benefits in an increase in the value of the investments within the trust. Similarly, um, or, or as an alternative, we could just say, we're going to give you all of the interest from the trust, or we can give you a defined amount of money every year. But what happens here is we put this, and let's just assume that it's a million dollars. So we throw a million dollars into the trust from his life insurance policies and his assets. And let's say that the, the assets are earning 4%. What happens is that we can make it that that 4%, which is $40,000 a year, goes to Jane. And if we left Jane with an IRA, that she now has for herself, so she has the assets. We left Jane with the house, but it remains in the trust. So Jane lives in the house, doesn't have the cost of at least owning a house or having to go buy a house. She has the proceeds from the trust, meaning that she's receiving all of the income from the trust, in this case, $40,000, plus she received some assets. So actually, Jane's doing pretty well, okay? Meanwhile, John put a million dollars of assets in the trust. So what happens is that Jane continues to receive the income from the trust, continues to live in the home, and when Jane dies, whatever Jane has goes to her will or her beneficiaries, however she has it designed. But whatever remains in that trust, now that is what goes to John's children. So there's a lot of uses of this particular trust of doing it that way. So... Of course, because I love talking about taxes, let's talk about the taxation of trusts, okay, or taxation of estates. So when it comes to estate tax, you have the Fed and you have the state, not a state, the state, okay? So you know, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Florida, Texas, okay? That's the state and the Fed. The Fed is relatively simple in that as long as you are under $11.5 million, your state isn't taxable. Most people are below that, okay? Now, if you're above that, then you might want to establish trusts, and that really talking about estate planning, but you might establish trusts to allow a husband and wife to be able to double that amount, $23 million, relatively simple. But if you're under that, then you're dealing with a state tax, which is either it's an inheritance tax or a state tax. An estate tax, by the way, there's 20 states of the 50 have an estate or inheritance tax. An estate tax is that if the estate is a million dollars, the state may apply an estate tax of 2%, okay? And poof, 2% of the entire estate goes to the state. Or it could be an inheritance tax, which is what Pennsylvania has. Pennsylvania has an inheritance tax that basically is specified by who's the beneficiary. So linear, which is parents to children, is 4%. Sideways, I like to say, is to your siblings is 12%, and everybody else is 15%. And believe me, I tell you, there's some planning that goes into that. Okay, so 
One thing to note is never at the state or the federal level is money passed to a spouse taxed. So you could be worth $10 million or $100 or $500 million. If you die and you're married and your spouse is the beneficiary, they don't pay a dime of tax on any of it. Okay, so let's talk about the individual assets within the estate. So in my tax planning episode, I had shown the buckets, but let's talk about that. So you have the non-qualified assets. Okay, non-qualified assets are the the property, the uh, investments. What happens is they get a step up in basis. Now, what does that mean? That means if I happen to be lucky and bought Microsoft stock in 1985, and I paid $10,000 for it, and it's worth $10 million today. What happens is it gets what's called a step up in cost basis, which means my heirs receive that $10 million in stock and do not pay any capital gains. They inherit it as if they bought it on the day I died. And it's always long-term gain. So even if I bought the stock six months ago, which would otherwise be a short-term gain, they inherit it as a long-term capital gain which, as we discussed in the tax planning episodes, is long-term gains are always more tax-preferred. IRAs always are going to be taxed as ordinary income. Always taxed as ordinary income. So that there is also an estate planning tool that I talked about in tax planning of converting to Roth IRA. If a couple has more money than they need, and they're in a lower income tax bracket than their kids who are in an elevated tax bracket, it may behoove them to convert their IRAs to Roths because when they pass an IRA, whoever the beneficiary is under the SECURE Act, which effectively is effective as of January 1st of this year, they must take it out within 10 years. Okay, So you leave somebody a giant IRA and they have to take it out within 10 years. And if you look at the average life expectancy, leaving money to somebody in their 50s and their highest earning years in the year, by the way, I love you so much. Take all this extra money and pay taxes at your highest rate. Okay, That's part of estate planning, but that's something else. Roth IRAs are also inherited tax-free. Okay, but they also have the required minimum distribution. And then the non-qualified annuities, if I had a $10,000 in an annuity and it's worth fifteen, dollars my beneficiaries have to pay tax on that $5,000. So that's the taxation of estates. So what we talked about here on estate taxation is going back again. It's one of the six areas of financial planning. And again, it's the end, right? So, you know, starts with cash management, which is today, all the way to estate planning, which is the end. What happens to the distribution of your assets and who takes care of your kids? Everybody, in my professional opinion, needs a will and needs to do estate planning because of the fact that you want to make sure that your assets go to where you want them to go. And you want to make sure that you have a medical power of attorney, a durable power of attorney, and even possibly a living will in addition to it. And if your estate gets to be larger, or you have younger children, or you have special needs children, or you think you might be leaving some money to somebody that you don't want them to take it all out at once, then you should be talking about doing trusts. So I can't encourage more the concept of talk to your financial advisor, understand what you have going on in your estate. Take a look at future episodes that I'm going to be having on estate planning as I bring estate attorneys in and 
talking about specific areas of estate planning. So that is it for today. Thank you for watching Financial Planning Explained. Once again, my goal of every show, I hope the viewers, every single viewer, learned something today. So I'm signing off. It's Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner, owner and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. I look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great week.